We stand looking into a shadowy and cobwebbed doorway, a trail of seven crimson drops leading us into it. Dare we enter? If you do, you will voyage into the strange lands of the real vampires and find that vampires, for all their seemingly hackneyed, endless coverage in everything from grand horror films to children's books, are not what you think and will in fact never look the same to you again. I'm Richard Sugg. This is Dark Histories from the Secret University. And I will in the next few weeks be putting out two books. One is the long-awaited paperback edition of The Real Vampires. And the next will be a brand new book, uh, an epic work, perhaps my best to date, I think, Talking Dirty the history of disgust from jesus christ to boris johnson proving i'm afraid if proof were needed that in fact the living are far more scary than the dead but we will venture amongst the living and the dead now with the seven crimson drops placed under the microscope and analyzed the first of them what did the real vampires actually eat were the real vampires heavily stylized gourmets such as Sam Neill in Daybreakers, who you may recall with his victim strapped into a chair while he sips her blood from a fine crystal wine glass, uh, rather like a connoisseur of Chateau Petrus. Uh, in fact, the real vampires were not going to ask you for the a la carte menu. They were simply hungry and simply needed to eat. In Greece, uh, the real vampire might be detected or suspected because it was found storing apples, nuts and grapes in its coffin. Uh, they might be seen by day, several vampires grazing on green beans in a sunlit field. These, some people will be pleased to know, were evidently vegan. Not all of them. Uh, sometimes a vampire might be suspected uh, because somebody had been drinking the milk of the goats at night and one person, vagrant it seems, was in fact shot uh, and anatomized when it was found that there was indeed goat's milk uh, in their stomach, probably some fairly ordinary human fluid. Uh, but nonetheless, we also know that uh, in hard times, people are known uh, wandering vagrants to drink the milk of goats or cows direct from the animals. So a strange kind of milky flavour of truth in this seemingly bizarre tale. But as I've stressed, the real vampires simply got hungry and they were not fussy. One key lesson I learned in roaming through the entangled thickets of wild vampire country everywhere from northern Europe down to Greece into Russia and on into New England was this if someone resembling uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula or indeed Edward Pattinson were to stalk haughtily through your Serbian uh, or German mud village, 
swelling their cape. There was only one reason to be frightened of them, uh, and this was because someone so alien and aristocratic looking could surely only be your absentee landlord, whose blood sucking was very much of this world and not the next. Just what else did the real vampires feed on? Well, in fact, there is considerable evidence that if they couldn't be bothered or managed to get out of their graves, they would simply feed on themselves. We hear of how during church services, corpses buried under the floor could be distinctly heard munching just below the worshippers, something which would have livened up my Sunday mornings at church no end and perhaps kept me there a bit longer than the age of 10 when I finally rebelled against the whole silly mess, even though it cost me my 10 pence pocket money, which was seriously a loss as the price those days of a cream egg. What was going on underneath the church floor? Well, it was lively and loud, as far as we can tell. Uh, people reported the vampire grinding with his teeth, uttering a low, raucous noise like the grunting of a pig who roots among garbage. Again, anything but stylized. It was widely believed in Germany that there were corpses which chew in their graves and devour whatever lies near them. They may be heard munching like hogs with a sort of grunting, grumbling noise uh, or a smacking noise, we're told by a German preacher in 1601, like a sow when it eats. This is all too eerily precise uh, in its repetition, isn't it? to not actually be something. It's almost certainly the sound of decomposing corpses uh, slowly and audibly decomposing when, of course, they haven't been embalmed. But in fact, there was one more truth uh, of real vampire country below this one, which was further down in the seventh circle of burial and in fact far more horrible uh, and this was the case of people who all too frequently were occasionally buried alive by mistake and who gnawed at their own limbs in desperation uh, a mutilation which would be discovered later uh, in the case of routine ritual exhumation something you might know which was particularly important in greece it was especially important for the corpse to decay and if it hadn't decayed then it was in fact subject to vampirization. So the rigorous analysis of our first crimson drop leads us on rather neatly to our second. The question being, what should you do if you have been accidentally buried alive? Well, let me answer that via a case from Russia in spring 1890. The vampires of Russia are a big long story with many of their own strange rituals around them but one thing that's been established uh, is that vampires of Russia were produced by peasant belief in what educated theologians termed heresy uh, and the things that were done to supposed heretics in Russia were so terrible that peasants believe that the only crime sufficient to merit this punishment was not in fact simple heresy or your own personal beliefs about religion, but the fact that these heretics must actually uh, drink people's blood, eat them or simply kill them, which was one of the main crimes that vampires actually committed in real vampire country. So we cut to Russia 
spring 1890 and here is the actual newspaper account from the time a very lurid light has just been thrown upon the life and superstitions of the russian peasantry by the perpetration of a gruesome crime in the name of what they take to be christianity this british author is obviously completely oblivious of what british christians actually did at this time which is a, another subject altogether but you'll see some of that in mummies cannibals and vampires a rich popular farmer died rather suddenly in the village of sorovsky he had been seen in the enjoyment of excellent health on thursday and was found dead in his bed on friday morning he was prayed for and duly waked, after which he was carried to the grave, almost all the inhabitants of the village, inclusive of the priest, following him to the churchyard. Just as the body was being lowered, the lid, which had been fastened rather loosely with wooden nails, began to rise up slowly and detach itself from the coffin, to the indescribable horror of the friends and mourners of the deceased. The dead man was seen in his white shroud, stretching his arms upwards and sitting up. At this sight, the grave diggers let go the cords, and along with the bystanders, bystanders fled in terror from the spot. The supposed corpse then arose, scrambled out of the grave, and, shivering from the cold, the mercury was two degrees below zero Fahrenheit, made for the village as fast as his feebleness allowed him. But the villagers had barred and bolted themselves in against the wizard term used in Russia for uh, these hybrid vampires. And no one made answer to the appeals he made with chattering teeth to be admitted. And so, blue, breathless, trembling, he ran from hut to hut like a rat in a burning room, seeking some escape from death. At last, fortune seemed to favour him, and he chanced on a hut, the inmate of which was an old woman who had not been to the funeral and, knowing nothing of his resurrection, had left her door unbarred. He opened it and entered, and going up to the stove seemed as if he would get inside it if he could. Meanwhile, the peasants gathered together, armed themselves with poles and stakes of aspen wood, the only effectual weapons in a fight with a wizard, and surrounded the cabin. A few of those whose superstition was modified by faith in the merits of modern improvements also took guns and pistols with them, and the door being opened, the attack of these Christians against this devil's ally began. The miserable man, dazed by all that had happened that morning, and suffering from cold and hunger, was soon overpowered, and his neighbours, with many pious ejaculations, transfixed him with holy aspen stakes to the ground in the court before the hut. This was what would happen to you if you were able to break out of your coffin with the wooden nails flying asunder. And finally, at the end of the day, having been left staked as a warning to all the village and indeed the children, at sundown, the stakes would be drawn out and your corpse thrown into a bog. You would not fare much better in Greece where one man buried uh, prepared for burial alive by mistake woke up at the funeral in his open coffin tried to struggle out of it and was stoned to death by the villagers drop number three leads us into perhaps the very strangest territory and is one of the big lessons i think uh, about a good book which is that it leads you far on beyond the publication of the work uh, and probably takes you on a journey through your life and in fact beyond it what do i mean by this well one of the things i researched heavily and knew nothing about until i got to this subject was the sleep paralysis nightmare 
and accompanying it something called voodoo death that nightmares in vampire country in witch country and all across the world for one reason or another for a very long time could quite literally scare you to death phenomenon broadly known as voodoo death if any of you have had a sleep paralysis nightmare you won't need this explaining uh, but those of you who haven't perhaps will you're asleep and then you're awake you cannot speak you cannot move something presently if you have a nightmare with the sleep paralysis will seem to be coming at you out of the corner of your room it might be a cat it might be some kind of amorphous demon but it's far more terrifying than a mere cold daylight paraphrase can ever convey. About three or four of my uh, 12 students for my uh, module, Literally the Supernatural, had this happen, were utterly terrified. Their parents didn't know what to do. There was no information on the internet at this time. Presently, the shape might be on your chest. Uh, the weight seems colossal. You are choking. You cannot breathe. You feel like you're being throttled. The whole thing seems to go on for a tremendously long time and is summed up as briefly as we possibly can by uh, one man in America who had fought as a soldier in frontline Korea for 18 months, but would later state that his single, his single nightmare attack of sleep paralysis was the most terrifying experience of his interior life uh, sorry of his entire life interior perhaps not an accidental slip uh, well if that was the case for a modern american within living memory what was this like in real vampire country we plunge back now into the strange terrors of medvesia on the Morava river where the Austrian army has been called in in January 1732 for the notorious case of Arnold Powell, who had died, in fact, five years ago, uh, but whose vampire contagion had flared up again and was afflicting many villagers. The report being fairly reliable here coming from the Austrian soldier Fluchinger. And one of the cases of terror was a young girl uh, aged about 20, named Stanaka or Stanoska, who one night rose from sleep, screaming in terror, claiming that she was being throttled by a recently dead man named Milo. Uh, the throttling, of course, when you understand sleep paralysis, was actually uh, a phenomenon of sleep paralysis nightmare. And so serious was this that... Stanaka went into a kind of hopeless collapse, pain in her chest, which grew worse and worse. And on the third day, she simply died. These are the symptoms of voodoo death reported over and over again, inside and out of vampire country, terror of magic, of witches, of in fact the crudest ghost hoaxes which could occur in the middle of Victorian London, and in one case caused a court inquest after the death of a young girl uh, from what was almost certainly voodoo death somebody simply leaping out at her in a white sheet for a foolish prank more serious in some ways was the case of elizabeth sawyer the so-called witch of edmonton uh, immortalized in the play uh, just after shakespeare's time elizabeth sawyer was hung at tyburn as a witch in april 1621 one charge against this poor ostracized alienated old woman being that she did witch unto death in 
Agnes Ratcliffe, her neighbour. What did this mean? Uh, it simply meant that she'd had a row with Agnes Ratcliffe, had loosely cursed her. And so serious was the aura surrounding a supposed witch in these times that Agnes Ratcliffe went to bed in a state of gibbering terror, foamed at the mouth, and very shortly afterwards died of fear. I myself, having never had a sleep paralysis nightmare all my life, went on to have three shortly after researching this. And the second of them was stranger than the cold, supposedly rational medical explanations of this phenomenon. I talk about that in the book, and it's a subject I'll be researching for my forthcoming books on ghosts and poltergeists. If you yourself have stories about sleep paralysis, it'd be very interesting to hear them, because I think the truth in some cases can be a lot stranger than clinical medicine would have us believe. Take a breath and a drink of something without too much iron content, perhaps, as we progress through the shadows and the cobwebs uh, to the fourth crimson drop. This is something rivaling in strangeness, perhaps, the case of voodoo death and sleep paralysis nightmares. Uh, and that is the soul of the vampire. How did you make a vampire in old times? There were lots of ways it could be done, but one of the chief motors and causes for vampire terror was quite simply the fact that real Christians in real vampire country really believed in the soul. And on top of this fervent piety, there was an interesting attitude to death. In most of history, for most of the world's population, as far as we can tell, there were actually three basic states of human life. You could be alive, you could be dead, or you could be only slightly dead. And you were slightly dead for crucial liminal periods of three days, 40 days, and a year. Handling here just the three-day period it was crucial in this time to try and understand that the soul of the dead person was likely to be hanging around in your house. You might, on the one hand, leave food and drink out for it. Uh, you might leave flour in which you would expect to see the dead person's footprints or at least marks of some kind. You might cover over liquids so that the soul didn't tumble into them and drown. You might cover mirrors so that the soul didn't fly into them, mistaking them for windows and be trapped for all eternity. You might throw open windows so that the soul could leave you might break a hole in the roof, as Italian peasants were said to do in the 16th and 17th centuries, so that the soul could fly out. In the Ukraine, you might bake special loaves of bread so that the soul could rise to heaven on the steam. All across vampire country from northern Europe down to the south, you might break open an actual substantial door-sized hole in your house or cottage and take the corpse out to its funeral through that hole. You would then brick it up again. Uh, and you can see an image of one of these corpse doors in the 
book, what was the logic here? The logic was that the soul, especially of someone who died suddenly, young, unnaturally, was all too likely to try and get back into your house. Sometimes, of course, they did. Uh, and what they're talking about here is what we would understand as a poltergeist or a ghost. So it was something actually occurring. Uh, but the vampire, contrary to Hollywood myth, was not terribly bright and would simply try and come back through the door through which it had been carried out. Hence, you bricked it up uh, and it was stymied in its attempts. This belief in the vampire, the dead person, being only slightly dead for around three days takes us right back to the New Testament. The biggest miracle in the New Testament amongst several uh, is not, in fact, the raising of Christ from the dead. It is the raising of Lazarus. Why? Well, because Lazarus had been dead four days and he stank as they protested to our Lord when he proposed this absolutely impossible miracle. Raising someone who's only slightly dead wasn't such a big deal. And by those standards, Christ himself was only slightly dead. As I said, real research takes you into territories so strange that they make you sit up just when you think you've become hardened to all the wonders and horrors of folklore. And I'll give two examples here. The possibility that actually, yes, somebody's soul is actually leaving their body. Is it actually looking down uh, at the body and at the mourners? In some cases, possibly yes. In a Texas hospital, relatives waiting around a dying man with nurses and a doctor as he lay dying claimed to see rising from his body uh, a small silver figure which was linked briefly by a cord which presently broke. Uh, this was attested to afterwards by the doctors and the nurses as well as the family. The writer Louisa May Orcott, author of Little Women, would also state in her diary when she was watching a deathbed scene that a black shadow actually lifted and rose out of the body just around the time of death. Drop number five, a bit more familiar to us. How do you stop a vampire? Well, you could stick a brick into its mouth. Archaeologists found one of these uh, in a set of plague graves not that long ago in Italy. Belief that the vampire had been chewing on its shroud. Probably, of course, just uh, the decay of the corpse and various fluids rotting the shroud. And this was found later on if a body was disinterred for whatever reason. You could, of course, stake it. You could, of course, burn it. In the case of Arnold Powell and that recurrence in Medvesia, at the end of it all, 11 bodies were seen blazing in a small vampire holocaust in that remote village. Uh, you would stake it perhaps through the head, through the heart, uh, these being key sites of the soul, which was so important to uh, all of this vampire belief. Less familiarly, you might bottle the vampire. And this was known to be a key way of disposing of it in Bulgaria, where two British soldiers were staying uh, in the 1860s and wondering with great terror and awe and bewilderment at all the local customs. A particular saucer was learned in the bottling of the vampire. 
he was able to see a vampire that was invisible to anybody else. He would pursue it with a holy icon. Uh, he would chase it up a tree or onto the roof of a house. Uh, he would drive him into the bottle, uh, which was tempting because it had some of the vampire's favourite food, this being, of course, excrement in it. Once he got the vampire in, he would cork the thing with the icon stuffed in and heave it onto the fire. Job done. In parts of Greece, well into the 20th century, you would boil the vampire. Uh, and this was, again, much more simple and homely than the films would lead us to expect. You simply needed a mixture of oil and vinegar and you toss this through a hole in the coffin no one's going to dare open the thing given the terror at stake here and incredibly in a country which was and still is of course intensely pious in its christian belief once you boiled the vampire uh, in its coffin you had destroyed its soul and no prayers or memorials candles whatever it might be would be lit or done for it thereafter a piece of quiet heresy uh, recalling many of the strange heresies of ordinary belief across vampire and other territories for most of history Another simple basic method, uh, if you haven't got much technology or time on your hands, and that was that you would merely turn the corpse upside down. Vampire, again, not terribly clever. If it's trying to get itself out of its grave, uh, it will then simply claw its way further into the earth. This was actually done well outside of vampire country, for example, in Tintin on the Welsh-English border in the early 19th century, probably because the people in question had actually murdered the person and well expected him to come for them. After his death, one prone burial there upside down and a perhaps still more extraordinary one, which was seen by a British officer in the trenches in World War One, when a British sniper who had killed a German soldier took the trouble to bury him, not standard practice on the battlefield in the midst of all that carnage, and bury him upside down. So, drop number six, no less strange in a different way. And I've just realized here we're not going to have time for seven drops because of the fact that this has to be half an hour. So we will come back for the next one in a little while. Drop number six and final uh, with the clock against us. What is the unexpected link between vampire fiction and Fifty Shades of Grey? Well, the earliest British vampire fiction, of course, goes back to John Polidori, the tale The Vampire, which came out of the horror writing competition at the Via Diodati, most famously producing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Byron got bored of his story set in Greece. Polidori finished it off. It became intensely famous because of the mistaken belief that it was actually by Byron, who, of course, was the biggest selling author, though, only of poetry at this time. So Polydori's uh, Greek vampire moves on through stage and page. Absolute riot of a play based on this. Terrific fun uh, to teach, as I found with my MA students. And big highlight next is the lesbian vampires of Carmilla. Wonderful novella, if you haven't read it, by Sheridan Le Camus. 
Sheridan Le Fanu. Uh, and then on to the far more famous and notorious, and it's always equally sexy, of course, Dracula uh, in 1897, just had its 125th anniversary. Now, what happens with those three pieces of fiction is that we get given to us uh, a figure who's about 200 years old, and this is the vampire, male or female, because female in uh, Carmilla, but they are typically male, aristocratic, and one or more of the following, aloof, pale, interesting, controlling, detached, uh, and as we've seen, aristocratic. And this then mutates into uh, the figure of Cullen in Twilight. Uh, and then finally, we get uh, the biggest selling novel of the century in the figure of Fifty Shades of Grey, in which, of course, uh, our interesting sexualized hero is indeed uh, aloof, controlling, detached, perhaps uh, sociopathic, and dangerously interesting to womankind. The curious irony here is that the opening gambit of this whole uh, surprisingly profitable vampire fiction was a piece of fan fiction. Polidori was infatuated with and highly jealous of Byron. Uh, and then at the end of the circle, we have it closed by a piece of fan fiction from E.L. James for Stephanie Mayer. This has been Dark Histories from the Secret University. Real Vampires and in paperback very soon, finally clawing its way out of obscurity. Enjoy yourselves. It's stranger than you think.